0: So wonder is that sort of split-second, momentous, lose-yourself, fully-present, mindful moment where your heart beats and you are completely enchanted by the mystery of that moment. Interaction is about the relationships between entities or between elements or between parts. Interaction is the relationship that we are having at any single moment with everything around us if we see ourselves as part of nature, then if we do damage nature, then it's actually a form of self-harm.
1: Hello and welcome to the Coconut Thinking Podcast. I'm your host Benjamin Freud and we have a special episode today. Charlotte Hank and my partner will join us today. We developed the wiser framework with Luca Perry as a means to move towards a more regenerative world, a more regenerative life, a more regenerative way of becoming. Wiser W-I-S-R, stands for Wonder, Intra-Action, Sustainability, and Regeneration. And we begin with wonder, which can be a moment in time, all the way up the flows through regeneration, which is about respecting the unique essence of all life and responding to the world in life-affirming ways. So we invite you to consider Wiser. It is a framework designed to be... Place-based, situated, contextual, historical it is not a model that can be replicated or scaled. It is about respecting the essence of your particular context and situation. Check us out on the Coconut Thinking website, www.coconut-thinking.design. And of course, Wiser on www.wisr.life. That's wiser.life. And I'll leave room for my conversation with Charlotte. Well, hi Charlotte, I'm really excited to have you here on the show. We're gonna talk about WISER today, the framework that we came up with with Luca Perry. I wanted to really speak to you a little bit today about your background, of course, and WISER. So we'll start with the question that we ask everyone, who are you and what story do you wanna tell?
0: Well, thank you for having me, Benjamin. I'm uh, a little bit apprehensive, nervous, but excited to be speaking with you today about this. Um, Who am I? Well, you know, because we've had many discussions about this before, that this is a really complex question and one that I don't find easy to answer, but I'll give it a go. On the surface, um, I'm Charlotte, I am British, I am female and I work in education and I have done for the past 21 years in various roles. I've lived in the UK, Hong Kong, Saudi Arabia and currently Thailand. And I've been working with all sorts of different kinds of children and teachers and leaders and really been exploring different pedagogical approaches and educational organisations. That would be one way to introduce myself. The other way would be to say that um, I am personified as Charlotte and I am the result of every single experience or interaction in my life so far as well as being the result of every single historic experience and interaction that has come before me. So what I'm really interested in and the reason why I find this question so complex is that we are not individual entities and quite often we have these labels, these markers, that um, individualize and this is just not a way that I think is conducive to nature, to natural systems and so that's, that's why I find it hard to answer. I don't exist as an individual entity, I exist with others um, and I use the term others to describe other people, other humans as well as other species and none of us live in isolation apart from, separate to, divided by others. We are all coexisting, interacting in every moment of our lives in a way that is dynamic and cyclical. And so that is why it's hard to define who we are. And obviously we rely on these um, these judgments, these markers to increase efficiency. But what is sad is that in that attempt to make life efficient, we lose so much uh, richness, depth, history, um, and breadth of all of our existences. So, But for the purpose of this podcast, yes, I'm Charlotte, I'm an educator, and um have a lovely husband and live in Chiang Mai together.
1: So we're going to talk about Wiser on this podcast. And Wiser is, in many ways, um, something that's difficult to grasp. It's got... A low threshold, a high threshold, depending on how we approach it. We want to get into a little bit the history of WISER and how it came about, and also its significance or potential significance in the world of education, and perhaps beyond. But in order to enter that conversation, I'm going to ask you the question that we ask everyone, which is, how do you define learning?
0: Again, such a, such a complex question to answer. And in and, you know, my travels and my experience, it is something that is um really yo-yoed in my mind backwards, forwards, around, inside out, upside down over the years. Um to, to try and speak succinctly, I would say that learning is an embodied transformation that brings about change or manipulation somehow. And so again just really weaving back to the previous point about how to how a person should introduce themselves to the world. Um, learning doesn't happen in any one way on its own it is embodied and by that I mean that it often uses the senses we can't take emotions away from our thinking as much as education might convince us that the cognitive and the affective are two different separated states they're not quite often when we learn it is a an intellectual or a physical or an emotional um, process that affects all of the other processes in a way that is interconnected. And when that happens, that transforms us so that when we um, enter other experiences, we can then use, apply um, that learning in a new context. So that would be my definition, an embodied transformation.
1: And from this point of view, We're looking at wiser in order to be a framework that will really look at learning in in a certain way, specifically in order to connect us more to the natural world. And when we think about wiser, there's there's really two different levels to wiser. There's the wonder and the interaction, which is the W and the I, and then sustainability and regeneration, the S and the R. Now, sustainability and regeneration, we're positioning them as, as not necessarily something that is ecological in the sense of recycling or composting, or, or some of the, the environmental sciences piece, but rather a mindset shift and, and even potentially a culture shift. But in order to get that, we start off with the wonder and the interaction. In order to really try to access this framework and, and the simplicity of it, but also the complexity of it, perhaps you can tell us a little bit about Wiser and history and, and what some of these words might mean, at least as an introduction.
0: Yeah, sure. Um, well perhaps first of all, if I explain how wiser was conceived. It was one year ago in the school holidays where I was reading yet another news article about um some form of climate change. Uh, I don't remember what that specific article was, but I remember it was really a cumulative effect of all the disturbing and distressing news that is out there from across the world today about how our environments are changing as a result of of, um, rising temperatures on the planet or the destruction of rainforests or another species that's been added to the endangered or vulnerable lists. It is that cumulative effect. And some people will call this eco-anxiety or eco-phobia. And I think that's very much what I was feeling at that time and continue to feel even to this day. So I, I sat there and I just thought, wow, there has got to be something that can be done. What can I do to respond to this anxiety that I now feel? And I thought, well, I'm in education. There's surely lots lots of ways that I can get involved Um and i just felt such a sense of hopelessness because what i didn't want to be doing was thinking about another recycling initiative or you know how do we conserve the water or let's turn off the air conditioning as you say it needed a mindset shift and it was really a book by jeremy lent called the web of meaning that really um made me think because in this book um jeremy lent writes about how we need a new worldview, and I thought to myself, "That's absolutely the answer here. We do need a new world worldview, because anthropocentrism is so imbued in our everyday behaviors, language uses, um, organisations, politics, economy, etc. And so, could I design something that could be helpful for other teachers? Because most teachers go to work each day wanting to do their absolute best for the students and for the world that their students live in. And so a lot of a lot of the teachers out there who are not environmental scientists or biologists might think, well, I, I want to do my part, I want to play my role in supporting the climate change agenda but I don't know where to start. I don't know what to do. I don't have the expertise or the knowledge to know how to move forward with this. And so that's when we get back to the same old recycling initiative, water, conservation, turn the air conditioning off and and so on. And those things are important, but they're not enough. So I really took a lot of inspiration from the SAMIR model. And for any of the listeners out there, you might be familiar with this because it's a really handy little guide to really provoke thought about how we utilize, how we use digital technologies in the classroom. And the SAMIR model has four sort of stages, Uh, substitution being the first one, and that's when technology serves as a direct substitute for say a textbook or a worksheet. Um, And it moves through to augmentation, modification, and then finally the R represents redefinition. And I've used this a lot when I've been designing learning experiences with students because I think, right, if I'm going to encourage my students to use a particular piece of digital technology, are we actually using it in a way that creates content or am I using it in a way that is just a substitute? And sometimes we do need those um, substitution for um previously used technologies, but obviously that can't be the sum total of a classroom experience for a student. They need to be creating with technology. And so I thought, right, that is something handy that can be pinned on a notice board or placed in a teacher's folder. What if we had something like this to support sustainability education or environmental education, however we we wish to term it? And so I thought, okay, let's have Four stages then, simple stages with a nice snappy little acronym that people are going to be remembering when they plan their their learning experiences. And so I was really inspired by Hayden Washington, who I know has been on your show before, been on this podcast, and he speaks a lot about wonder. And he says, and I'm going to take this from um, Hayden, he says the one thing that everyone can do is um express awe and wonder at the natural world in their attempts to be more sustainable. And so I thought, okay, great. That's something that all teachers can do. Wonder for the natural world. So maybe that could be the first kind of um, stage. And then I was thinking, Teachers have to take their students outside. You actually have to go and be in the natural world in order for students to develop a relationship with the natural world. Because I think a lot of the problems that we have with the worldview that we currently hold is that nature is the other side of the window. It's the other side of the glass. It's something we look at. It's out there. We're not necessarily um, directly experiencing nature as we go through our day to day business whether that's school or home or going to the office or wherever. Um, and there there seems to be literally a divide between us. And so whilst we can express wonder from indoors, because we can listen to sounds, we can look at beautiful images, we could watch a documentary show. I know that that's, uh, whenever I watch David Attenborough documentaries, I, I, I feel a sense of wonder. Um, so wonder can be experienced from inside. But there comes a point where you have to go and physically experience the natural world. And so this is where interaction, which is sort of the second flow, really comes in. Um, And from there, from interaction, and I can go in a little bit more detail later on about each of these four areas. We then have sustainability, which is probably a concept that a lot of us are familiar with. And finally, regeneration, which is something that you, Benjamin, I know, have spent a lot of hours um, studying and and thinking about. And so it, it didn't immediately come out as the wiser model. I think there were five stages at first, and then actually you were the one that helped to form wiser. And I think it was at the time that I was reading Jeremy Lent's fabulous book, and I was reading about wisdom and the wisdom of indigenous people and the wisdom that's held in the, the natural world. And, and so that's how the acronym was really formed. And then it just became perfect. It made sense. And um, with your input and my input, I feel that we we created the, the start of a really beautiful framework that would really help teachers and educators to design experiences that would really support this um, global movement towards reducing anthropocentrism and supporting a more ecological or social um, constructivism towards how we uh, think, do and make in the natural
1: world. And of course, we brought in our good friend Luca Perry uh, in Mm -hmm. this because he's absolutely brilliant and he was able to stress test and provide Mm -hmm. creative ideas and and really form so much of what the framework is in terms of its its concepts and its depth as well uh, in in that uh, collaboration, uh, and but, his brother.
0: Yeah, well. and what what was really great about Luca's input was that he really teased out of us um, the the spiral, the the symbol, if you like, of the Wiser Framework, and and that was just a fascinating process because. Luca was encouraging us to think very visually about creating something that would have stickability, I guess, that other people would be able to draw upon and remember, um, and that process of using something visual without the language, without the words, to really encapsulate um, a thinking on our part, this, this new world view that is, I mean, we want it to be simple so that people can use it, but actually what's behind this what might seem quite simple on the surface is, is deep and it's complex and it's years and years of um, thinking on, on our part. So that was, yeah, it was a fantastic input from Luca and, and his team. Yeah.
1: Now, one of the things that I really want to stress here is that we talk about changing world views, which actually sounds like quite a task, uh, and and we certainly wouldn't put ourselves in a position to think that we're going to change the world and 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 those the mindsets of everyone and and change the paradigms for every single person on earth. I think that is, in many ways, the source of the anxiety that we feel as as we're confronted with these global crises and facing these these massive boulders that we're trying to push uphill through mud, uh, is is fr- incredibly frustrating. But one of the things that you pointed out is that this is designed for teachers. Now, this could also go towards administrators and and really anyone and maybe outside of school increasingly as we look to go beyond school. I I really want to talk about a little bit about the simplicity of WISER and its depth at the same time, this tension and these contradictions, because the idea of regeneration and sustainability are really tremendously complex. But the way that we have brought it down is to talk about, for instance, regeneration in terms of what is life-affirming. What is the I, the respect of unique essence of all living things? And if we can be guided by that star of respecting the essence of all living things and acting in ethical ways that are life-affirming, then maybe it's a little bit more palatable. It's a little bit more understandable and doable. But I really want to get your thoughts here about this idea of wonder and how you mentioned that with Hayden Washington, anybody can experience wonder and awe, and that's really Whereas regeneration could be a world-changing paradigm that is, you know, uh, something that lasts for hopefully centuries. Wonder is a moment. It's an instant. It's, it's, it's really something that, that can perhaps not even be, be uh, segmented in terms of time.
0: Mm.
1: I, I'd like to get your thoughts on this and how that works in the classroom. And specifically, what is different from wonder from, say, a provocation?
0: Mm. Yeah. Um, for me, wonder is actually quite tricky to articulate, but I'll, I'll give it a go. The way I think about wonder is this, this sort of childlike enchantment, curiosity, um, excitement. It is about going beyond yourself. It is about losing yourself, forgetting yourself, and your attention is placed on the subject or object of wonder. And so I like to think of wonder as connected to affect. And affect is quite similar in the sense that it is not something that's easy to define, but it would be full, a full-bodied experience, a full-bodied moment where you might feel your heart beating or you might feel yourself with that wow, that wow response to, um, to the, the stimulus. And so wonder is not about asking questions. Wonder is not about saying, oh, how did that spider create that beautiful web? Because as soon as you start to question, you are moving beyond a stage of wonder. So wonder is that sort of split second, momentous, lose yourself, fully present, mindful moment where your heart beats and you are completely enchanted by the mystery of that moment. And then, what follows from wonder is the the intellectual wonderings of why something happened and why it's perhaps built like that and 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 what materials may have been used to construct something so on. so it is something that is not tangible. You can't sort of um hold it in your hands or put your finger on it. It is that transformed moment split second response or affect into a stimulus and so when we're thinking about wonder in terms of the natural world I am sure that for everyone who is listening right now you have experienced that moment whether it is a sunset or the sounds of birds or maybe it's seen the the leap out of water of a great white shark or Maybe it's just something so beautiful with your cat. Maybe your cat does something very naughty, mischievous, and it it makes you laugh. It is that full-body sensation of, oh, wow. And so, yes, wonder is something that we as teachers can um, facilitate because we we can create the conditions for that. But a provocation is a lot more intentional. So the teacher who sets up a provocation is specifically using certain um, materials, ideas, questions with which to elicit a response. And for wonder, that is just not something that you can really predict or contain or control. It's very much down to the individual and their life experiences, because if you've never seen... um, I don't know, the, the sea or if you've never seen a particular animal, then what may be wonder for you might be an everyday commonplace occurrence for me. And so wonder is really unique and special to that individual. And, and that's why I like to think of it with this childlike enchantment, because what is so wonderful about young young children is that they experience a sense of awe and wonder about so many everyday mundane um, experiences that we take for granted and this is something that we can really learn to harness from children whether it's the the fire engine that drives past or whether it is um, an advert on tv or whether it's a seemingly everyday object to us that's quite normal but for a child because it might be a new experience or something quite special (gasps) you can see that they experience that sense of wonder. And so it's really unique for, for everyone, um, which is what I see as being different from provocation, which is quite often about um, moving your students perhaps more intellectually, whereas wonder is about your senses and, and your emotions and, and, and having that sort of minute, tiny response to stimulus.
1: And I guess a provocation makes me think in terms of billiard ball way of approaching life, a very Newtonian mechanistic way. Mm -hmm. I create something, I do something, and I expect this to happen in order to have an entry point into a unit. I maybe stir you intellectually or emotionally or whatnot, but it seems very mechanical, whereas wonder feels more like a state of emergence, which again, is about leading us towards that idea of regeneration, which is about emerging, about letting things grow naturally. No two trees in the forest look the same, even if they're the same species of trees. And I think about this that, that you and I have talked about, about how learning comes, um, sorry, growing a, a, a plant, any any form of life, a, a human, a cat, a snail grows from the inside, but it needs the context in order to grow. So, uh, you know, the, the, the tiniest sapling becomes the biggest redwood and it grows from the inside, but it needs the proper soil the proper light mm. the proper water the proper neighbors as well and the proper biodiversity around so it's this it's this situated contextual blend of 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 self and environment and and that all mix into one to create this this affect of wonder mm. rather than the linearity of provocation and mm. i'm speaking like this in order to perhaps also segue into the idea of Intraaction, which is different from interaction, and see what your thoughts as as one flow of wonder goes into the flow of interaction.
0: Right, yeah. And and just just to weave back to provocation, as as a teacher, sometimes I do create provocations where I think I might know how the students respond, but not always. So I just want to make that point that we might have some teachers listening who do design provocations who really don't know how their students will respond. However, I do agree with what you're saying about this sort of linearity of learning in terms of a provocation, um, because it is somewhat contained, which is not what we're trying to um, encapsulate or communicate with wonder. And so, yeah, the interaction is the, the second sort of flow or um elements to discuss in the wiser framework then interestingly this was interaction to start with and the thinking here was you have to go and interact with the natural world i always come back to the fact that we, we can't just expect our young people to have relationships with the natural world if they don't actually go and interact with it if they don't smell it touch it feel it um, look at it, uh, feel moved or stirred by it. When I say it, I'm, I'm meaning the natural world and other species who, who live within that world of which human beings do. I don't want to create that separation. But I'm reading um, at the moment a lot of work by eco-feminists and there's one in particular who has it's really moved me and that's the work of Karen Barad and she is the first uh physicist to to coin this phrase intra-action, which is hyphenated and so what Car- what barad writes which is, makes total sense um is that we don't enter into any situation or experience as a solo entity and this goes back to how i introduced myself in that I I don't exist as Charlotte, as this this solo person who moves through experiences in life, again, in this linear way, sort of adding to my my bag of experiences and that I remain very much Charlotte with a few kind of enhancements or, you know, flares along the way. Um, Interaction is about the relationships between Entities or between elements or between parts. And when we think about our experiences in the natural world, it isn't about the snake and me, for example. It's not just about two living creatures in that moment. It is about the conditions. It's about the conditions, as you spoke about, with the soil and the rain and the weather. Interaction is the relationship that we are having at any single moment with everything around us. So if we take this conversation right now, it would probably be very different if we were sitting outside in April. And in Thailand, April is incredibly hot. Um, in direct sunlight, perhaps feeling mosquitoes nibbling at us. The The conversation would no doubt be very different. And equally, if we were speaking right now with... Um, dodgy internet connections and um, digital technology letting us down, perhaps, I'm sure that we would be using different choices of words and feeling pretty frustrated. So that would also affect our conversation. So right now, as we have this um, conversation, we've got a microphone, we've got lights, we've got a certain temperature in this room. Um, There's the way you're making eye contact with me, which, you know, impacts me. It creates an affect. Um, I can see that it's going dark outside. All of these things we are in relation with. And so the the interrelations that are happening right now are all creating this particular condition for a conversation. And it's the same when we are teachers and we design experiences for the students. It's never about individuals coming together It is about the relationships between everything in that moment. And so when we think about designing experiences in the natural world, we take our students outside. They have to use their senses to experience the natural world. And we're going to experience the weather. We're going to experience the sounds in the environment. Some of those might be man-made sounds, maybe music or cars. Um, and, And some of those will be but the sounds of um other species maybe birds maybe we'll hear crumbling of leaves crackling of twigs like whatever but all of these things are interrelating all the time um and that is interaction and so that's important to to really slow down and think about because like i said If you do not have a certain experience, we cannot expect students to have a relationship with the natural world. And if they don't have a relationship with the natural world, they're never going to care about it. And if they don't ever care about the natural world, then they're not going to develop empathy when the natural world is suffering or struggling, which is what we see in all of our news articles today.
1: And one of the things that I wanna bring up here is something that we'll probably leave as a thread um, for someone else to pull or or maybe we'll pull on it in some other podcast. Because when you mention the conversation that we have, when you mention what happens and, and the, the, the context in which we're having this conversation and how it creates affect, I'm, I'm kind of sitting awkwardly here in front of the mic. I've never done a podcast recording before with someone right in front of me. It's always been on Zoom. We've had to kind of make sure that the room is cool enough in order to uh, to not have the humming of the uh, air conditioning or the fan in, in the background. Um, there, there's a lot going on here that affects this conversation. And so I'm thinking about not just what you said in terms of how we are in the natural world, that we are part of that assemblage in th- that is our context. But the thread that I'm going to leave hanging is in terms of school and education, how there is no isolation of the individual, as you mentioned very early on, which means that the conditions around which, through which, in which, within which each learner experiences anything is, 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 is unique and situational and historical. And any kind of assessment that tries to standardize the um, capturing of information fools itself because the context is unique, situational, and and, and historical. And so this is, again, a way to move into this idea of regeneration, which is about respecting the unique essence of every living thing. But also we could probably extend that to respecting the essence of every assemblage, every situated, momentary instant that is fleeting and has already disappeared, which cannot be standardized because no two event mm. is the same. So again, I, I think there's layers of depth here that mm-hmm. we may or may not be able to explore. We may not be the right people to explore, but hopefully someone will, will take that up as well.
0: Right. And, and I think the individualization of students in education systems across the world is probably for another podcast at another time. But yes, as you stress, we are an assemblage. We are um, all communicating reciprocally. And the idea that only teachers can give students agency is just so absurd. And, And yes, like you say, someone else listening, I'm sure will be able to pick this up, but interaction in the context of Wiser is really about Acknowledging that everything has agency and that everything has um, the potential and the opportunity to affect everything else around it. Um, And so, yes, when we think about how we measure and score students individually and we try and take them out of their natural world, take them out of nature, it's just so absurd. Um, But I'm really glad you raised that point because it is very much, um, very much damaging in terms of how we try to sometimes immerse students in certain experiences and then in other ways we take them out of those experiences so education is very strange in many ways
1: (laughs) one of the things that you know we've thought about as well tremendously is is this idea of even being able to go out into the natural world if you are um in a school that has high pressure you have to nevertheless go through a curriculum there's maybe some high stakes testing more importantly if you're in an urban area that might not have mm. so much access to the natural world how do we overcome this challenge because at the end of the day being able to go into the woods next to a river is a privilege and, and and some urban settings don't have the privilege of accessing these places
0: that's Look, it is what it is. If you are a teacher with limited access to the natural world, then this is a different ballgame. And I'm not going to pretend that this is um, the same as um, an educator who has an abundance of natural world right outside their classroom. It's not the same. However, um, what I would like to emphasize is that I am a teacher. I Teach junior school children, primary school children, and I have done for most of my life. And I've worked in urban areas. I currently work in the most beautiful area of the world in Chiang Mai, where there are paddy fields and buffaloes and all sorts of gorgeous in- insects everywhere. So, it, in that sense, yes, it's easier for me. Um, so, accessing the natural world is definitely an issue, an extra consideration for those teachers who don't have that access. Secondly, what I'd like to point out is that we have to think about these practical things like the school schedule. So I know what it's like to get your students in the correct footwear, maybe put coats on, walk them outside um, and and so on and how long that can take particularly for younger children. I do remember visiting some schools in Finland where they're I was amazed because their students were so fast at taking off their salopets and putting their skis to one side and getting into their their classrooms. Um, it just amazed me how students in the UK were so much slower. But I think that's indicative of the nature of the Finnish education system, that students are used to being outdoors so much more than, say, UK students. And that, a lot of that could be to do with access, accessibility to the natural world, but it also could be something to do with the way that their schedule is designed so that they have been able to over time hone these kind of important transitions of moving from one space to another. Um so in terms of just, just to pause a moment on wonder, you can of course bring aspects of the natural world into the classroom. Um, and one of the one of the really beautiful um, experiences I designed a few years ago with um poetry actually and it was a, it was really i can't remember exactly what it was but it was river poetry and i brought in a lot of pebbles and shells um seaweed Uh, These kind of tactile resources and materials that students could hold. We described the textures. I remember them putting the shells up to their ears and listening out for the sea. And there were some students in my class at that time who had never been to the seaside. They'd never been to the coast at the age of 10. So having those um, direct first-hand experiences with the shells and so on was, was really quite mind-blowing for me and for them actually um and so that obviously supports interaction can you bring aspects of the natural world clearly not necessarily living creatures we have to think about our ethics here in terms of how we handle them and the stress that that might cause them i'm not necessarily an advocate of bringing animals into the classroom i have to say um but there are um sort of leaves or wood or or different resources that you can bring into the classroom. And I know that a lot of early years settings um, do a great job of this. Um, And in terms of encouraging or designing interaction, um, yeah, that there is no magic wand to say bring the natural world to the students if it's not easily accessible in the, the, the
1: proximity of their school. And I guess the question, as always, is not an easy question to answer, but what would it take to bring the natural world to urban areas? And this is, of course, a bigger systemic conversation about our separation with the natural world. But if we live in the urban areas of concrete and and metal and glass, this perhaps is one of the reasons why we're in this situation that we are today. So maybe this is a bigger systemic conversation to have, and Mm -hmm. we're not trying to solve that. We're just trying to perhaps open up the door to that conversation or at least be one of the hands that pushes on that door. Mm -hmm.
0: And I think it's important as well that we don't want to be appropriating nature for our own uses. One is not a means to an end because that is actually perpetuating anthropocentrism. The natural world isn't there for us to bring inside, to decorate our spaces and to smell good and to serve us. It's not there for us to capture, to... um, to rip up, to destroy—it's uh, not wallpaper. I mean, yes, flowers are beautiful to look at, but I'm—you know—I'm I, I, not really someone who wants to take flowers out of the ground, put them in a vase for my own sort of entertainment. So we have to be very careful about how we are uh, bringing the natural world to us humans, because it all comes back to that worldview. If we see ourselves as part of nature, then if we do damage nature, then it's actually a form of self-harm. And these are the problems, as you say, that we find ourselves in now. This is this kind of thinking, this way of being is what leads to uh, the rise in temperatures, the plastics in the ocean. We, we, we can't be thinking about, well, what's good for the human here, even though intentions might be good. So there is very much and. An, this probably is connected to the the next parts of the wiser framework, which I think we're going to discuss another time um, but this this is all part and parcel of how our how our actions our thinking our doing our making is towards protecting and sustaining life
1: and we'll um, bring this conversation to an end with sustainability and regeneration still left there and and we're not going to do the insult of uh, wrapping uh, up sustainability and regeneration in, in four or five minutes. So why don't we just go all out with the absurd and just leave it at reading how we conceptualize or, or how we have framed sustainability. If we could just read that and we're going to at least go as superficial as possible and explore <laughs> these concepts at a different time. Let's just go all out. Well, sustainability. What does that look like in the Wiser model or, or how do we conceptualize it? Okay, so we
0: conceptualize it as learning, as guided by a set of ethics, which emphasize balance of energy and resources in nature.
1: What about regeneration?
0: (laughs) All right, so regeneration, we are conceptualizing as learning, as honoring and expressing the unique essence of every member of nature.
1: Well, Charlotte will leave sustainability and regeneration, perhaps for other conversations with others that we'll include within the community, because this Mm -hmm. is certainly about opening it up and co-creating with the community. Again, the co-creation of WISER is something that we can explore else. Thank you, and I'd like to also thank Luca Perry, who has been really instrumental, um, and also William Perry's brother. Uh, Both of them have been instrumental in in designing uh, the WISER framework. I'm gonna ask you one very, very last question quickly. Why are we calling it a framework and not a model?
0: Because a model is easily replicated, whereas a framework is more open um, for the, the the user as an entry point wherever they are at.
1: Beautiful. Thank you. If you'd like more information, check us out on uh, Coconut Thinking. Uh, the website is www.coconut-thinking.design and Wiser more can find out more on www wiser.life that's w-i-s-r dot again this is benjamin freud with charlotte hankin www.coconut-thinking.design and www.wiser.life thank you bye-bye